Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. We are talking today with my former colleague, Rishi, who is a neuroscientist. In this episode, we discuss the research that he has done so far. We talk about the trade-off in the functioning of the human brain between specialization and generalization, and how different parts of the brain might work at different timescales. We also discuss distributed computing in the brain. How do millions of neurons do something together without a single organizing center? Rishi explains how he uses the lens of math and computer science to understand how our brains are able to pack a lot of memories so efficiently and recover them correctly when needed. And we talk about his research of using math to find patterns in the neural firing of mouse brains while they are awake and asleep. Okay, so uh, this next section is going to be about science and philosophy. So let's, you kind of described a little bit the themes on which you have, in which you have been interested and worked, but uh, can we get into some more details without making it too technical um, on what you have researched so far? This includes your PhD and your and your postdocs. So my if you, so let's just imagine that you're you're trying to communicate to the intelligent layperson uh, what you have researched on. So my, I did a few things in my PhD, but really just to focus on one kind of idea that comes up in a lot of places. Mm. Um, there's this interesting trade-off in the brain between specialization and sort of generality. So if you look at the neocortex, which is... The, you know, the sheet that makes up a lot of what we think of as our brain, you'll see this very much this repeated pattern. Um, it looks like the neurons in different places seem like they're organized in the same way. You've kind of got this repeating motif. Um, and at the same time, you see very different computations carried out in different parts of your brain. Some parts of your brain are there to track early sensory information. You know, light flashes, they're responding to it quickly. Other parts of your brain are looking at trying to store memories over time or help you to make complex decisions. And so there's this tension and this interesting question. On the one hand, if you look at the brain, you might think, oh, it's just this very general purpose computational machine. It's like we've got the same chip or the same you know, structure repeated across the brain. On the other hand, you might say, well, we've got these different modules that are doing different things. So how, does, how, do, how do these two perspectives link together? Mm-hmm. And how does, the actual, how does the anatomy actually specialize? What lets parts of the brain do one thing mm. and other parts of the brain do other things? And so one thing I kind of zoomed in on or one thing that I focused on was this notion that there are different time scales in different parts of the brain. So as you're talking to me, one part of your brain is really keeping track of every syllable, every word. It's tracking what's going on in the environment from moment to moment. And another part of your brain is trying to zoom out, trying to make sense of it in a broader context trying to maybe link it to something I said 10 sentences ago mm. or to philosophy or to something someone else has told you about the brain. 
And you tend to see these different timescales in different parts of the brain. Um, this has been shown experimentally? This has been shown experimentally. In the context of language processing? In, like in the context describing? of a number of different tasks, in the okay. context of language processing, um, in the context of just if you look at spontaneous fluctuations in the brain and look at how long they take to vanish, um, it's almost like if you push a pulse of current in, into a part of the brain, mm. how long does that region of the brain hold the information around? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did a bunch of both modeling and theoretical studies trying to link some of the facts we know about anatomy, how the brain's wired up, to what we know about dynamics, how these how the parts of the brain change the activity over time, and then to function. And so one of the ideas that emerge from this is that as you get to more as you get to parts of the brain that are responsible for more abstract thought or responsible for more complex decision making and things like that, they become more recurrent. They tend to bounce information around longer. They they talk to each other more. Mm. Um, and you can see this in the anatomy. There was these this very interesting set of papers, um, this guy Guy Elston, just looking at neurons from different parts of the brain across species. And you see these big changes, not that are quantitative changes, not qualitative, but the neurons become bigger, they have more connections and so on. And if you put those changes into a model, you start to get these qualitative differences where different parts of the brain can do different things. Um, they actually put this in a, in a, when you say in a model. Like in a computer model. Okay. Huh. Um, and so this line of work has, you know, been getting, has been, I think at the moment is in a pretty fertile place. There's a lot of experimental and theoretical modeling around these ideas. Not, I mean, not, I'm not saying they were started by me. They were like a bunch of people working on this at the same time. Hmm. Um, and so it's, but it feels like kind of interesting intersections, Ask really asking, if you zoom at it, saying what are the organizational, large-scale organizational principles of the brain? Mm-hmm. You know, why does one part of the brain do something and another part of the brain do something else? Mm-hmm. Um, is there some sort of organizational principle that lays out that plan? Mm-hmm. And then for my postdoc, um, I kind of split into the two pieces I talked about earlier. In one piece... I was trying to. I was studying a number of questions related to how the brain can efficiently communicate, as compute and communicate, using. Let me let me say that again. Um, so you have some very large network of neurons, maybe millions of neurons. Um, some of them can talk to each other. Some of them can't. And you're trying to understand basic principles that allow these n- networks to do things like store memories or make a decision. Um, and one of the things you want to show is that, well, can they can, can they store memories or make a decision efficiently? So what does that mean? Um, for storing memories, you might say, well, I've got this big network of neurons. They need to store memories. They need to store a lot of memories. Just, you know, over the course of our life, we need to remember lots of things. How can they do that in a way that lets them retrieve the memory and also pack in as many memories as possible without them overwriting each other? Hmm. So, you know, maybe you've gone to a friend's house a few times Ideally, you'd like at least some of those episodes to be distinct. You don't want them all just to collapse together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did some work using, I think, but I think some very interesting ideas in computer science, looking at properties of large networks um, and systems for error correction built on large networks, using those to try to understand how the brain might store memories. I think 
I mean, I, I guess I'm not being super clear about the general idea here, and I think mm-hmm. it's because I don't completely completely understand it well enough to make it simple. Mm-hmm. You know, I think once you I think once you understand an idea well but, enough but to make in general, I guess. I mean, I have been to some of your talks before, but the general um, idea is that there is a trade-off being between being able to store many memories and between being able to retrieve any one of those very accurately. So if you if you if you devote a bunch of resources and storage capacity, let's say, to three memories, you would expect that you should be able to retrieve each one of them very fairly accurately given some sort of a prompt mm-hmm. or cue. Yeah. But using that same storage capacity if you're storing a thousand different memories then when trying to retrieve them, you could re- retrieve one that's kind of similar, but not... They could so, so the accuracy or... kind of, yeah, they could start to interfere. And it can be less robust. Like imagine yeah. you have a book, you want to write down your memories. Yeah. If you want to make really sure you remember something, you could write it down a hundred times. Yeah. But then you have less space to store the other memories. Yeah, yeah. And so there's this pretty general trade-off between how many things you can store and how well you can store mm-hmm. them. So would it be fair to say that you used ideas from computer science theory and math to explore what how you could possibly build um, the architecture for a brain to have uh, a reasonable uh, trade-off between the accuracy and the storage capacity yeah i think that's right and not just reasonable in some sense the best we showed that brains can perform just as well as the best computer algorithms Mm. at least qualitatively Mm. so you know the storage capacity they kind of hit the ideal capacity robustness trade-off yeah yeah um and i think what i'm really excited about in this work is there are these interesting objects called expander graphs that pop up in a lot of math and computer science and again i think we have some reason for understanding why we have some intuition for why they're so important but i don't think we understand it completely Mm. but they're these basically these large weakly connected network well networks with not too many connections that has that end up having a lot of interesting mathematical properties that show up to me in a still mysterious ways in a lot of different problems hmm. um and i think one of the cool things about them is they were introduced by kolmogorov we think hmm. to model the brain hmm. to um, model the brain to model neuron packing in the brain okay um and, and it he turns, was he was he was around Roughly when? Like early to mid-20th century. Okay. Um, and they've had this interesting, you know, they've had a lot of impact in math and computer science, mm. but they're a very natural way for thinking about computation in the brain. Mm. And they're a very natural way. They've been used elsewhere in math and computer science to kind of bridge this sort of structure. They're both these networks, so they have a structure, mm. and they used to design algorithms. And that's exactly the sort of question we're sort of thinking about. Um, neuroscience, how do the connections between neurons give rise to the computations they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one project I worked on. There were a couple of others. There was another who I think where we used a bunch of techniques from a bunch of geometric techniques to effect- effectively find shapes in data. And we used these techniques to look at data from mice brains when they were awake and when they were asleep and looking at, and trying to investigate how they maintain their sense of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, within all of us, we think there's a little circuit that keeps track of which way we're facing. And so if you're in your room, I can say point to the door and you can, even if you're not looking at the door. Mm. Um, 
how do you maintain that sense of direction? They're a bunch of ideas. Um, but <clears throat> being able to actually test those ideas and data requires both enough data and ways of pulling them and ways of pulling the structure out. Um, and it turns out that if you look at these circuits when the animals asleep, that kind of gives you a very clean, in some ways, experimental condition. It's almost like a natural experiment. Because when the animal's awake and the circuit's working as it's expected to, you can't really tell what's internal, what's external, what's coming from the outside world, what's being generated by the animal. But when it's asleep, it's almost like you've you've snipped the input to the circuit. And now you can actually see how it's wired up without all of this external input coming in. Mm. And so you can actually kind of see its bones. One might ask the question, when the animal is asleep and it's not really looking around the room, it's not changing its head direction, why would there be any activity in this part of the brain in the first place? So like maybe it's sort of a two-part answer to that question. Mm. The first is that, you know, neurons tend to fire when you're asleep. Mm. They're kind of organized in certain with certain connections. Those connections are still there when you're asleep. Mm. And so those things just randomly activate. Mm. Kind of the same way that when you're dreaming, you see all these images and, and things like that. Mm. Um, and part of the reason we think is that, you know, the same neurons are talking to each other. The same neurons are active. Mm. Um, and so these, you basically have the same patterns. And it turns out there's a lot of overlap between at least one kind of sleep called REM sleep and waking. I think there's maybe a deeper and more interesting question. Like, why do we have REM sleep at all? It mm. seems... You know, if the purpose of sleep is to refresh us, why not just turn off the neurons? Or why don't the neurons do something different? And at least during another kind of sleep called non-REM sleep, a slow wave sleep, neurons do something quite different. But during REM sleep, the puzzling thing about REM sleep is our brain spends a lot of time in it and it does what looks to be very similar to waking. Mm. And it's not at all clear why. Mm. So in many ways, I think REM sleep is the more mysterious one. Mm-hmm. You wanted to talk about something that you described as distributed computing in biological systems. And in the same point, you mentioned the link between matter and information. Yes, I think this is kind of a broader trope that maybe got me interested in biology in general. Hmm. But if you just look, so like, you know, why is, why, what makes the brain more interesting than the liver? Not to, you know, not to really criticize <laughs> people who study the liver. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, on the one hand, the brain is this hunk of biological tissue with a bunch of act- electrical activity that's kind of moving around and we can ask how does electrical activity get from one place to another and so on. Hmm. But from another level, it's doing something. It has a function that's not just, um, you know, maintaining a level of something. It actually seems like it's. we can think about it as transforming some information. You know, if you have an input, you have an output, we can think about it using the language of computing and computation. We can bring in ideas of representation of the outside world which I think is, you know, a dangerous idea, but an, but an interesting one. We can come oh, back to that. Okay. Um, but, and so there are these multiple levels of seeing this biological system. On the one hand, it's this piece of, you know, it's this piece of matter. On the other hand, it's this information processing device. And I think there's a lot of interesting creative tension between moving between these two levels. Mm. Um, and then the distributed computing piece comes back to this idea of, how do, you, how do millions of neurons really do anything mm-hmm. when, you know, they don't have... I think they're kind of like interesting ways in which they don't have organizing centers. There's no spatial organizing center. There's no, you know, single entity telling each what to do. 
there's also not that much there's also an interesting kind of instability over time you know neurons come and go connections weaken and strengthen how do we get any sense of permanence or memory of or time on this kind of shifting system mm-hmm. so there's a lack of an organizing center in space is lack of an organizing center in time um and then they're really strongly coupled to the world it's not that you don't think of the brain as being this abstract hmm. entity separate from the world everything's happening in response to this constant stream of information coming in actions going out and even the in and out distinction i think is a bad one um and so you know anything that anything anything interesting that happens emerges in some inter- in some way and it's not quite clear how mm-hmm. uh what did you mean by the link between matter and information oh really just this idea that you can think about mm. these systems as somehow material mm. and from this information theoretic yeah, level yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. which is kind of an abstract okay. level why did you say that the idea of thinking about representations of the outside world in the brain is a dangerous idea i don't know maybe i think it has the potential to be misleading i think it's mm. very useful mm. but i think you know there's I think this kind of there's a line there's a Brecht quote that I like to repurpose and so he says oh art is not a mirror with which to shape the with which to reflect the world it is a hammer with which to shape it and I think the same is true of the brain I mean the brain didn't evo- didn't evolve mm. to build abstract representations of trees and chairs the brain evolved to act in the world um a useful way to study it is to say well let's separate out the world from the brain mm. um assume that as part of acting well in the world the brain builds abstract representations and manipulates them and then uses them to drive outputs and but it builds the representations only to the extent that being able to work on that representation gives it some usable benefit yeah and i think and i think one can make an even stronger point that mm. sometimes the search for representations can be misleading because mm. if you believe that representations are a good way to study the brain and they often are i think but if you believe that then you know you go looking for representations you try and judge how accurate those representations are or maybe try and judge what they're there for but you've kind of lost you you often separated out the environment you've separated out behavior you've separated out the organism and you've kind of taken this perspective that you can kind of abstract the representation from the whole interacting system hmm. um and i think that can be misleading as and a lot of people have pointed this out i think like for example the pragmatists take a view of the brain very much in terms of you know we've got these sensory motor loops mm-hmm. running through us um we had these kind of you know we're, we're really inter- completely intertwined with the world mm-hmm. um if you're looking for representations i think you often neglect how much information there actually is outside in the world and like whether you actually need to mm-hmm. and then i can also i also think that the notion of information can sometimes be misleading because then you start to frame things in terms of these input output devices which again the brain is not you know most of what our brain is doing is just kind of like seamlessly acting as part of a world mm. and then you can kind of snip it and try and look at the pieces but i think you have to be careful when you do it thank you for joining us today in the room of lives in the next episode we talk about rishi's philosophical trajectory as it relates to the science of the mind and about the question of consciousness in a material world mm.